Alrighty, howdy all. Uh, welcome to cast number two of Rock City. Uh, hope you're all feeling good out there. So, obviously, uh, we gave you a little introduction into our first cast about what to expect from the show, and today we just sort of like to delve a little bit further into the one and only Melbourne Rock City and what it meant to us. And I know that we touched on the record stores and a couple of the bands that, that certainly shaped... Uh, the initial idea, I guess, that we came with, would you say, James? Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that sort of pushed this mm. this idea that we had to get it out there. So we've actually, I'm going to tell you what we've done. We've actually just storyboarded and, and written down on a piece of paper all the bands that were, were massively important to us mm. in that in that initial period um, and the venues um, and... Obviously, again, for Melbourne punters, everyone knows the tote. Everyone knows um, the punters club back in the day, the Evelyn, all those particular venues. And a lot of the bands that played at those venues are the ones that we're about to read out. So we're just, we're just going to to shoot out a couple randomly. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jazz, I'm going to ask you, and then you can ask me. And, and hopefully you guys might just sit back at home and go, shit, yeah, I remember. I was actually at that show. Yeah. And, and, and this piece of paper has got seminal bands and and all great Melbourne bands. And these were bands that really early on in the early 90s shaped what Melbourne has become and essentially the the Oz music scene. Mm. And some of these bands are defunct. Some of the musicians have found other things. Some of the musicians still are, strong, are yeah. still going strong. So and I think you'd say that the, the bands on that list are quite diverse too in terms of their their genre and their style. But I mean, sure. even before we go into those bands, perhaps you know we we often come across this idea of a, a Melbourne style of music or a Melbourne sound. Is there anything to you, Jason, that really defines that sound? <laughs> we were chatting about this before, weren't we? And yeah. For me, yeah. I, I mean, it's always seemed very gritty. It's always got a gritty, uh, really, really you know accentuated sound it's something mm. there's always a message in the volume of it in the sound of it and you know again even in that early period i don't think that that melbourne musicians were the best musicians on the planet oh, they God, certainly yeah. they they certainly hadn't come out of um, music school but what they did do was they were passionate yeah. and they wrote great stuff yeah, they absolutely. banded together absolutely. and everyone helped out each other and mm. that was a, a massive thing for those yeah. early Melbourne bands in that music scene. It, you know, it, some of the bands we've got in here, Spiderbait, Snout, Nursery Crimes, Volatine, Hard-Ons, The Meanies, The Avalanches, Art of Fighting, Sandpit, the list goes on. But for you, Jazz, what do you reckon, what, what is something that sticks out for you as something that really shapes the sound of what these bands sounded like? Well, I, I think you're, you're spot on when you, term, when you talk about the volume and the sheer dynamics of, of Melbourne bands. I think there's definitely um, a love of creating emotion through just, and, and a tone and a feeling through the sheer volume. Um, the number of bands, uh, the number of gigs that you leave with absolute ears bleeding in Melbourne, it, it, you know, it, it's almost 100% of the time there's genuinely a love for volume and I think not just frivolous volume though but using it for a purpose and to to be evocative I think the other thing that Melbourneians we just rock man don't we (laughs) absolutely but I think the other thing is it's just it's very much guitar driven it's very much abrasive um, and it's melancholic 
I think, you know, that sort of really bright guitars, heavy bass sounds with a melancholic tone, you know, even in its most bright moments, Melbourne bands seem to be able to draw upon, you know, quite um, sad undertones or, or a melancholic feeling underneath that. And I don't know whether that's a product of the weather or, you know, where we live, um, but it certainly helps to shape um, us as citizens of Melbourne and definitely the, the Melbourne sound, it's definitely very much present. And I know that a lot of the bands that we'll talk about tonight really have that melancholic undertone uh, with all of those other features that we discussed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's, it's something that I, you know, can't put my finger on it at all either. Yeah. It was just something that I always gravitated toward. And even now, it, I've got this really funny thing where I see a band mm. and I can absolutely tell that they're either a Melbourne band or a Sydney band yeah. or an Adelaide band. And I'm not trying to say that, that the Melbourne bands are, are better than everyone else, but for us, growing up in, in what was such an important music scene, mm. um, it's really helped shape a lot of the music that I'm into now. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, and some of these bands were just rocking out and doing it so well mm. and making some of the most beautiful music and, um, you know getting it down on record as well so yeah and I think what you're saying is right I mean the music that was being delivered was incredibly evocative and the passion with which it was delivered I think that the, the encapsulation of Melbourne as a city through the sound is a really important aspect I mean Melbourne is, is very culturally diverse it, it's it's home for people of many different um, backgrounds cultures yep. and, and we we see in our music a lot of those cultures and styles coming through and I think that's really important to know I'm like you I've been fortunate enough to see bands all out, all over the world and without fail whenever I've been overseas in England in particular witnessing a band from Melbourne playing overseas or being on a festival bill that you can spot them instantly, not only by their distinctive sound, but the, the sheer energy and enthusiasm. You know, even if there's one person watching, they're, they're bleeding on stage and the sweat is, you know, is ever present. Okay, so yeah, just to remind you again, you are tuned into Rock City with Jazz and Jay, and um, we're just going to get into a little bit of uh, the nitty gritty here. So, Jazz, if I was to say to you, tell me a bit about the band Mola. Yes. I'd, uh, I'd like you to elaborate for all the Rock City listeners. Yeah, sure. Mola were a band um, that was quite important to me. They were on a Mushroom imprint. Um, Mushroom was, was the major label. They, they were part of an imprint, which the name escapes me at this moment, but that was an independent branch of Mushroom Records. Um, yeah, I that was actually, yeah. Uh, Infectious, I think it might have been. Infectious. Something like that, yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. they were really around 95, 96, 97. Uh, Mola, to me, were, were very much of that sound, but they were starting to, and this was probably about the time when uh, the Melbourne independent scene was starting to feel some commercial success, and, and Mola were one of those bands that were, the sound was utilising commercial aspects to, to you know, sort of make themselves present in the scene. Um, to describe the band, Mola were three-piece. They had um, a, a female vocalist and bass player, uh, a guitarist and a drummer, um, and they were very much, as I said, of that sort of 
pop rock, um, blondie inspired sort of sound, but it also had elements of, of tonal harshness. And they would often play at Revolver. That's where I distinctively remember seeing them, you know, quite a few times. And in fact, you'd often, if you were a part of the scene, you'd often, you know, as in playing in bands, you'd often see uh, bands such as Mola just rehearsing at Revolver or, or any of the other rehearsal rooms. To me, they were quite special because um, seeing uh, a, a local female-fronted uh, band was still, regardless of the fact that it was 95, 96, was still in the minority. And, um, you know, it, it really, you know, probably being an adolescent male as well, I probably found it quite alluring, but the way that she, she sang was, was still quite aggressive and it was a different persona um, than what a lot of females have portrayed in rock and roll. Uh, and certainly that, you know, hit home for me and I, I really, appreciated that style and what they, the message that they were trying to come across yeah. with. And they were always really rock driven as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and tell us a bit about Snout. Oh, uh, Snout. Another totally cool band from yes. that era. Yeah, yeah. well Snout are, are one of those bands that most Melburnians will, you know, anyone who has an interest in, in music will have had some encounter with. They became really popular um, with the song Crow Magnum Man, which was you know a big Triple J success, and Triple J being uh, one of our independent radio stations, or sorry, government-funded, but alternative youth radio stations. Um, Snout were this really curious entity that, in a time when you know, as we were describing, that it, music was quite abrasive and quite quite melancholy. While they still had the melancholic tones. They were really influenced by the sounds such as, you know, that of the Beatles, you know, very much um, sort of Mersey beat, pop, you know. Great 60s pop yeah, sound, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, with re really playful lyrics. And once again, like Mola, where there was quite a strong dynamic on stage in terms of the three people that were in the band, Snout were quite um, unique in their own way. The, the lead singer was, you know, a very tall, lanky, uh, musician, brother of, of Link Meany, so there's another connection to, to Melbourne music. Um, Greg, the guitarist, was um, little, glasses, nerdy guy, and then you and the, the drummer was, uh, you know, they, they all seemed very disparate people who you'd never imagine coming together in a million years, and I think yeah, that's part of the attraction, is that there was this, this really strange dynamic, and you often wondered how they actually came together yeah. to make any of that music. But yet it did, and it came together, and it was just, you know, heavenly. Yeah, you know, it and was I, really beautiful. I remember my favourite release of theirs was "What's That Sound." Yeah. And again, for for all those cool cats out there that that tuned into the uh, the first cast of Rock City, we we discussed Go Go Records, yeah. and that was a staple for Go Go yeah, at the time. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. They were signed to Go Go Records. And they had a, another album after that, Circle High and Wide, which didn't give them as much success. And I think that they kind of got a bit burnt out after this success, particularly of Cro-Magnum Man, which was, you know, the, their really big single. Um, and and perhaps even creatively, they, they kind of hit a bit of a wall because their sound didn't particularly evolve, but certainly as a staple on the live scene, they were one of those bands that would just give 100% and you could dance to and... Uh, you know, they really brought you into their sound as well. Yeah. You know, really a, a, a major player in, in, in Melbourne music at that time. Awesome. Thanks, dude. And just lastly, a very interesting band, and, and again, one that I, I particularly adored. I loved this band. Yeah. Um, 
tell me a bit about Sandpit and your earliest memories of Sandpit. Well, Sandpit happened to me quite accidentally, actually. And in fact, I kind of have you to blame for this. I, I, I first witnessed Sandpit as part of a, 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 a triple header bill with uh, Snout and the Super Jesus and Sandpit. So it was a, a triple S bill at um, RMIT Story Hall. And Sandpit were playing first. And, uh, this, was in, this would have been perhaps 97. So I would have Sorry, just I'm just getting a, comfy here. So it goes. <laughs> I would have been just uh, starting university, so I was um, still new to, to, to gigging. And uh, as I said, I hadn't really come across Sam Pitt, and they were the first band on the bill. And I, I distinctively remember them because the guitarist had this really um, curious mix of atonality and, and melody and once again there was a dynamic between the three people on stage Steffi went on to play in something for Kate she was playing bass in Sandpit at the time um, I can't remember the, the singer's name but um, they, they just seemed this absolute they seemed diametrically opposed you know, yeah. they were very different people yeah. And, and, and that portrayed in their music there was this tension between you know all the different parts in the band and as I said, it, it, while the music appeared on the surface quite melodic, there were these really um, atonal chords and very strange, you know, sounds happening underneath. And they, it really piqued my interest in terms of how music was made with a guitar. You know, how you could actually gather different sounds. You know, that really angular sound that sort of conflicted what was being spoken in the lyrics. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, and um, put out a couple of cracking little EPs. Yeah. For all those uh, Rock City fans that, that, that remember Sandpit, revisit those EPs because I did not long ago, and they're cracking. Yeah, they're they, ho- they hold up today, and surprisingly so. They're really and, cool. and I think that's the real beauty of a band like Sandpit is that you can revisit them and you just think perhaps in another time in another era they may have been you know more popular than they were and um just unfortunate that things conspired and something for kate came along and and the band actually parted ways but um that first their one and only album along the moors which coincidentally again came out on a go-go records you know is still considered an absolute classic it is it's a crack and i remember at the time that that actually split up before the album came out and there was a a big to do because that's right they had to the the album that was considered such a a good record that they really wanted to to release the album regardless of the fact that they weren't even together so yeah you know a good testament to the you know, to the adoration that that band is really held in. Yep. So definitely have a listen to that. Yeah, no, for sure. And once again, Rock City uh, listeners, we're, we're, we're trying to sort of just dabble a little bit into the into the early gigs and bands that, that we think shaped. So mm. it, this is by no means a comprehensive guide. Um, you know, I'd love to sit here and, and talk about the Powder Monkeys and, and, and the Dirty Three and the Cosmic Psychos for that fact, but... One of the bands from my earliest memories that I'd like to talk about um, is the Hard-Ons. And um, again, for me, I just loved going and seeing these guys play. Mm. They were a three-piece. The drummer sang. And I remember the first time they ever set up their gear, and it would have been at an all-ages show uh, at the corner there with the the Manic Idea shows, and the drummer, Keish, who was this sort of 
half Sri Lankan, uh, you know, thin, kind of wiry, dark guy who got up behind the kit and he just belted it out and sung these beautiful pop mm-hmm. songs. And it, it was almost, um, it was almost like what, what Power Pop is today. Mm. They put out um, a really early release called Dick Cheese and um, they had these great little limericks and funny songs and Blackie was the guitarist and then they had Ray who was the Asian bass player who uh, coincidentally still works in record stores today um, up in Sydney and um, I mean they still play and perform today but um, they put out a, a record called Yummy and it's just got some great pop tracks on it and, and as a young kid watching that band I totally admired them and I thought they were great and everyone used to go bananas to them and, and stage dive and they had great merch and great artwork um, so they were a band that definitely from that from that early period in the 90s there um, that, that, that definitely shaped my music and what I digested after that wow. um, do, you, do you think that there was um, an attraction given the contradiction between you know the image which was quite like the hard-ons the names you know the imagery around it which was quite um over the top punky and then you were talking about the music being quite poppy was that something part me that attracted you to them or that made it even more appealing yeah for sure and i loved the way that they because they generally were the headliners at most shows yeah and I love the way they just got up, set their gear up and started cranking yeah. out. And right from the get-go, yeah. everyone was stage diving and going, <coughs> going bananas. But So at the shows, the shows always seemed really punk rock, but to listen to on record, yeah, they're really quite poppy. Mm. That, that record, Yummy, is, is really, really quite poppy. Tracks like Where Did She Come From? Mm. And um, so a lot of that early gig going for me was, was seeing hard-ons. I saw The Meanings, I saw Spider Bait, Nursery Crimes. Again, a lot of the Roxy listeners would be familiar with these guys and they'd know who they are. And, um, and, and yeah, and, and a very magical time, lots of great gigs. Opened my eyes to a lot of the music that was happening at that time. And, and, and there was definitely that gritty, punky urgency and just heaps of energy. And I mm. used to just remember going and seeing The Meanings and I saw Link, and, and the guy was leaping off, off the bass drum, off the off the kick drum, into the air, doing these enormous squeals, mm-hmm. and flinging his dreadlocks around and flinging himself into the crowd. And but again, they had a great sense of melody and wrote these great little pop songs. And um, I think that you know, a, a lot of those bands at that time were were really. Mm. really just throwing everything they had into their songwriting and their performance and you could really tell so I mean you, you talked about seeing these bands at underage gigs I mean as, as an underage kid somebody's still going through high school and you know what what was the effect of having an access to, to bands like that on you I mean because it, we have this and, and if, we, if we didn't have it you know what was it something that you know was there a positive effect on you obviously there was but you know how how was that actually achieved or what was that effect yeah definitely and because i mean a lot of the gathering from those all age shows were were kids that were just coming in from the suburbs yeah and um all of us were just were just kids that had grown up with 
you know, radio mm. and commercial radio. Mm. And then all of a sudden you put in these venues with these bands that are turning their amps up to 10. They're right in front of your face. They're right there with this, these polarising, you know, tracks. And the energy was so raw. So it really did flick a switch on the back mm. of my neck or something. And it just made me think that they were great, you know. And I still revisit those records and I get so nostalgic when I revisit mm. a lot of those records. And um, it's really hard to put your finger on. And um, I think it's something that only people like ourselves growing up through that period yeah. can, can really understand it and define it. But, um, but yeah, certainly those bands at, around at that time had a massive influence mm. on me. And, and then... Nursery Crimes and Pre-Shrunk and um, and then further down the track, Hoss and the Drones and all those just really great guitar rock bands. Mm. I think bands like Hoss and the Drones really exemplify for me that sound, mm -hmm. you know, that sound of Melbourne. And for anyone who hasn't um, heard the Drones Wait Long Enough by the River um, album, that debut album, it's, a, it's simply a must listen to. Mm -hmm. And um, if... You know, if I could encapsulate that sound into 60 minutes of a record, the Melbourne sound, it's, it's essentially that album. Mm -hmm. You talked a little bit about um, Nursery Crimes. What about Spiderbait for you? Well, yeah, again, I mean, again, Spiderbait are probably incredibly familiar to a lot of people now. Um, but they, what, what Spiderbait are now uh, is very different from what exactly, they were originally. And originally they were just, again, this really... Um, sort of trippy um, punk rock band with this mm. really urgent feel and Cram had this wacky voice and he used to tell tales mm. um, about you know it, uh, the guitarist you know Whit, he almost had this like metal guitar sound the tone was so like it was just so scratchy and chugged along yeah and um, I remember I actually bought their 10 inch before I went and saw them play mm. and when I had the 10 inch I just thought this is full on mm. like this is full tilt punk rock with this buzzsaw guitar sound and when I saw them play yeah. they had a, a chick bass player Janet mm. and, and Cram was again this wacky dude who sang and, and played drums and you know I just remember going to gigs all age shows and the whole front of the stage would be moshing and there'd be kids sitting on the stage and on the drum riser. So mm. they'd all just get on the stage and yeah. Spiderbait would be playing around them. And Cram would be just like, can you guys like move off the, the drum riser and stuff? Because all the kids and everyone was just literally sitting on the stage. Yeah, right. and, um, and they went on to achieve you know massive commercial success and they're still quite busy mm. uh, uh, quite busy and, and big now but um, yeah at that time they, they were the go to band they got a lot of the supports and, and when internationals came out they supported Fugazi and mm. they supported Super Chunk and, but um, yeah they were they were a great band mm. really really had that. they are 100% um, defined that Melbourne sound from that period without a doubt Absolutely, I would agree with that. My, I've, my experience of Spider Bay probably stems from um, Pushover. Uh, they co-headlined with Silverchair, and I think the year might have been '94 or '95. And this was just when Silverchair's uh, 
Frog Stomp album had come out, so of course they were the headliner because they were massive at that stage. Um, but having Spiderbait as, as the second headliner, they, they're my overwhelming memory of it playing Old Man Sam, you know, it, yeah. which is that was really still good, one of their big, a, yeah. a really good example of, of what Spiderbait do in that they you know that faux country punk sort yeah. of um, down south hick. Yeah. Um, type verse with just you know as you said that metallic guitar sounds and I re- remember being at Shed for well Pier fourteen I think it was called Shed five Pier fourteen or something down at um, the Docklands and having Spider Bay playing that to maybe five thousand underage kids and you know it, it really signifies the strength of the scene at that stage because. Um, you know, pushover was never quite as big as what it was in, in that era, and for a band of you know very modest means and, and fairly modest success to be playing to, to significant amounts of people was you know a yeah. massive example of how big the scene actually was. And I think they probably surprised themselves. Yeah. Because you know, here the these three mismatched-looking mm. people. Um, that sort of came down to Melbourne and just started doing shows and, and... And that seems to be a bit of a theme, doesn't it? Amongst all the bands, it's this, you know, disconnection between all the members. They seem to, yeah. you know, like we talked about with Snout, like we talked about with Spider-Man, they, they seem to, they appear to come from all these different planets and then, you know, they... they and make these great abrasive sounds mm. or, or pop sounds and just have this great sense of melody and, and, and it, again... It's not like that they chose some sort of direction. They didn't say, we're going to be like this or we're going to do this. They just kind of wrote songs and started mm. playing and it, mm. the way it sounded was totally unique and it, mm. that's just the way it came out. So mm. so for me, yeah, those bands definitely, um, you know, I can remember a lot of, of times of being yeah. firmly placed in, in a venue and, um, and in, in thoroughly enjoying those. Mm. So... So, yeah, so that's just a bit of an insight yeah. for... Uh, that, that's just a very brief, you know, look at some of the bands that have come out of Melbourne. Um, our list is very long and we hope to, to go through a bit more in depth with some of those other bands and perhaps in, in the future look at, you know, some different venues, some different uh, record labels, some different particular mm-hmm. gigs and some different albums that really shape the Melbourne music scene as well. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, thank you very much for listening today and we've really enjoyed you know, this little yeah. trip down memory lane and uh, we look forward to seeing you for episode three. Yeah, I hope you dug it and we'll elaborate more and see you soon.